right, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. Um, let me uh, open us in prayer as we get started with Sunday School. Father, we're thankful for the chance um, that you give us to gather together as your people. We're thankful that by your Spirit you have given us this day of rest and worship and fellowship, uh, this day that we have um, to receive all that we need from your hand. Um, Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts for worship this morning, uh, which we will experience together in just a little bit, and that you would do so even now by dwelling with us by your Spirit as we study the Word that you've given us through uh, James. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so this uh, spring, as, as we continue our series in the Epistle of James, um, we're taking a just kind of journey through this book, doing a kind of group discussion, Bible study, um, um, study of this book together. And today we have reached a passage that you are familiar with, I'm sure. It's probably the most famous chapter in the book of James. Uh, James chapter 2, beginning at 14 and continuing to the end of this chapter, the famous chapter about the relationship between faith and works. Um, before we dive into this, the details of this passage, I want to do a few things this morning. Uh, first, I want us to take a, a minute to look at the ways in which James has used that word and concept, faith, um, previously in the book of James, um, to sort of set the context. It's always important, of course, when we come to the Scriptures to understand um, the, the broader picture, not just the specific passage, but how um, that word or concept is, or theme is being developed in the Scriptures and especially in the particular context of the work of the book itself. So remember in James um, chapter uh, 1, verse 3, we see the first um, uh, example or the first use of the word faith. Uh, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think, um, of course, we've talked about this, how these, these verses form sort of the thesis of James, its, its main point, um, the summary of its argument in many ways. Uh, sometimes James gets a bad rap. It's, it's, it's not about faith, it's about works, right? It's, it's not about um, um, the free grace of God, it's about um, obedience. And, and, of course, there are some reasons why people would say that or think that, but right from the very beginning, James is talking about faith. I would argue that James is actually a book about faith, and it's about um, the particular kind of faith that saves. The faith that justifies is the faith that James is talking about. He really wants to work with us to understand what that faith looks like. Here in this verse, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he, he believes that the faith that, that saves is a faith that is tested, a faith that is not just sort of uh, once and then drifts away, you know, you, you flip the faith switch and then you just do whatever you want. No, the faith that saves, that justifies, that makes you right with God is a faith that is tested, that over time produces steadfastness as it is tested and leads to maturity. Um, then going on into verse 6, um, we have another expression of faith. Remember, this is in the um, where James is talking about asking for wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God gives generously. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, James says, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The man that asks in this way is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So for James, faith is something that you persist in. It, is, uh, it's, it's, it has to do with the integrity of the whole person. Um, you can't ask 
for wisdom and then um, not want what the gift of wisdom requires, which is the testing of your faith and probably trials and difficulties. Uh, James says you have to ask in faith. You have to be persistent. You don't. You cannot be double-minded. You have to be single-minded. That what is is what true faith looks like. Someone who is single-minded, not double-minded. Um, then, um, if you go on to the beginning of uh, chapter two, I'm going to show the next important iteration of the word faith. Chapter two, verse one. James says, "This is the passage you looked at two weeks ago." My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And of course, this introduces that whole um, uh, parable story illustration uh, where James talks about the rich man, the poor man coming into the assembly of God and people treating them differently based upon their appearance and their wealth or lack of it. And James says that you cannot do that as you hold to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith in Jesus has implications, not just implications, has requirements for your behavior, uh, for your ethics. So faith is not something that's simply cerebral up here in the world. It's something that has to be lived out in your life in obedience. And of course, the first example of this James gives is this idea of of loving others, treating others with with dignity, with love, with respect, um, without partiality as to their appearance. Um, So we're seeing, I just think it's important to see that, that, that faith is being developed here as we come um, to chapter 2. The second thing I want to do, just for a moment, I want you to pull out the hymnal that's in your, in your pew, in your row, and turn to the back to page 857. You may not know this, but you know, hypothetically, if there's ever a moment in the sermon where you're um, you know, bored or whatever, you could always go to the back of the hymnal and read the Westminster Confession um, and, and read some good stuff. So it's back there. You may not know that, um, but it's there. So page 857, the Westminster Confession of Faith is printed in our hymnals. And I want to show this, that that good works, there's actually a chapter on good works um, within our our confession of faith. And and this is important because as we think about the relation between faith and work, sometimes we have this idea that, well, the Reformed um, faith, quote-unquote, is is just about the importance of faith. Faith alone, right, is what justifies. And of course we believe that. But there's also a significant aspect of the Reformed tradition, Reformed theology, that emphasizes the importance and even the necessity of good works. Um, It is not some optional thing, um, and and our confession makes that clear. I think it's important for us to see that as we come to this discussion in James' epistle. So the second section on that chapter 16 of good works, um, our confession states, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So look at that. The good works that we do in obedience to God's law are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. And and notice those those, uh, adjectives there that are used to describe the kind of faith. This is the kind of faith that is referred to in chapter 14 that is a saving faith. A saving faith, this faith that justifies, the faith that alone justifies, is a faith that is true and lively. It is not a dead faith, as James is going to talk about in his um, his epistle. It is a true and lively faith. And how do we um, know that we have a true and lively faith? According to our standards, it's because we're participating in good works. That is, those things that are done in obedience to God's commandments. And it's important as we think about works. Um, Works is obedience to the law of God. You know, works is not just simply, you know, working at the soup kitchen. Now, that might be a good thing for you to do. 
um, and, and certainly don't want to discourage that, but the, the category of works is basically obedience to God's law. So that encompasses all areas of our life, right? Every day we are doing, quote-unquote, good works. Um, it doesn't require us to go and do something special in order to do good works. Good works is simply obeying the law of God. Good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, by those good works, this is really important here, believers manifest their thankfulness, so we show how thankful we are to God for our, for our redemption, for His grace. We strengthen our insurance. They strengthen their assurance. I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, this good works, obedience to the law of God is actually meant to be one of the assurances um, given to you by the Spirit that you are part of the elect, that God loves you, that you belong to Him. Um, I think that is really important um, for us to see. Sometimes we think about assurance as this thing up there in the clouds that maybe we'll magically access one day. Um, our confession talks about assurance as something that we can experience, and actually obedience to God's law is a big part of how our assurance is strengthened. We edify our brethren. We adorn the profession of the gospel, right? The gospel is proclaimed, but it's adorned as God's people walk according to God's law. It stops the mouth of adversaries, so those that would criticize the Lord Jesus or His church. They glorify God, whose workmanship they are. And that's important, right? The works that we do, the obedience that we render to God and according to His law, is not our own work fundamentally. It is the workmanship of God. Of course, we see this in Ephesians too. We see this in other places in the Scriptures. Um, that we are created in Christ Jesus thereunto. Right? We, we obey God's law because the Spirit of God works in us and causes us to do it. That having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So the fruit of good works is holiness. The end of holiness is eternal life. I think that's so important. Our confession states very clearly, without holiness, who shall see the Lord? No one. No man shall see the Lord without holiness. Um, and it is not an optional sort of add-on thing. Um, good works are an aspect of what it means for us to live with a true and lively faith. And good works, properly defined, I think it's really important to say this, are not some sort of super extra, you know, wonderful things that we do for God. It's simply obedience to God's law, right? It's loving our neighbor. It's, it's being faithful in our marriage vows. It's not cheating on our taxes, you know? Th these are good works, Good works are not, not extra, super important things that we do. Uh, they're simply walking in the way that God commands, the law that He gives us, um, to love our neighbors and to love Himself. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions about that before we dive into this somewhat controversial passage? <clears throat> All right, let's jump into James chapter 2, verse 14. So remember the context, the kind of faith that James is talking about is a faith that is tested, a faith that demonstrates itself in persistence with God as we ask for wisdom, a faith that displays itself in not showing partiality um, within the context of uh, the assembly of God's people. So James is going to start in verse 14. Let me read, Let me read the first four verses here, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, James says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also by itself, I'm sorry, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, what jumps out at y'all here? What's interesting about these verses? Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, our works evidence our faith, and that's exactly how our confession speaks about them, that our works give evidence the vitality, the life of our faith. Yeah, Eric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he talks about obedience, like we, we are not only meant to um, listen to the law of God, but to do it. Yeah, 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 it's exactly the same, yeah, it's the same concept. Don't be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word, right? That same, that same idea of obedience. Um, essentially what James is doing here in verse 14 is he's, he's setting up sort of a, a, a situation, right? And, and we don't know for sure why he's doing this. I mean, I think the likely reason, remember this is a, an early Christian community likely suffering a great deal of persecution and suffering, um, and maybe some of them are being tempted just simply to express faith in Jesus and not to worry about perseverance, not to worry about obedience to God's law, um, because obedience to God's law um, in their context will, will require suffering and difficulty. Um, and so that may be the reason. Maybe there's been some false teaching that's developed about the unimportance of, of works in the life of a, of a Christian follower of Jesus. And we don't know for sure, but James is setting up this contrast, right? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So bare faith, intellectual faith, um, without uh, works. Can that faith save him? Can that faith justify him, we might say? And then he sets up this metaphor, right? He says, or illustration of that point. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and it's interesting that here he uses the word brother or sister. What is that in reference to usually in the epistles? Not your natural brother or sister necessarily, but your brother or sister in Christ, right? That's probably what he's talking about here. And it's interesting because this is likely not a hypothetical scenario, right? You're dealing with a Christian community where people have been forced to leave their homes and their, their possessions. Um, it's likely that there are poor, um, well, not likely, it's certainty, really, that there are poor um, brothers and sisters in their midst. Uh, maybe the poor brothers and sisters have come from Jerusalem, and you've got people in Antioch or wherever that are receiving these people, um, and they're all Christians now. Um, so how do you treat those refugee Christian brothers and sisters that are coming to you? Uh, James says, if, if one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, we might say, is poorly clothed and lacking in food, which is a, obviously a really reasonable scenario for someone who's had to flee hundreds of miles because of persecution, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, right? Shalom, right? That's an ancient Hebrew blessing, right? That, that would have been familiar with. Be warm, shalom, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for body, for the body, 
what good is that? So there we see, we see the faith there operates as this sort of bare, um, sort of blessing, this verbal profession, um, but it is not backed up by any kind of deeds. It's not backed up by obedience to God's law, which says you care for the stranger and the sojourner, right? You care for someone who is in need, especially um, someone who's your neighbor. What good is that blessing when it's not um, manifested in, in obedience? Um, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, if it does not have obedience, we might say, is dead. It is dead in the same way as that bare sort of well-wish um, is for that person in need. Yeah, Eric, and then I think Carrie had her hand up. Yeah. Right. But if you're imagining <clears throat> this person's going to tell, you know, that they were helped by you, right. to all the other people, but and all these other people are becoming a national as well, it's probably some fear associated with I just can't give to everybody. Yeah. I'm gonna not give to anybody. Eric's making the point that if it may be a self protective thing where this person is saying, If I help you, I'm gonna have to help a lot of people and I can't I don't feel like I can help a lot of people, so I'm not gonna help anybody. So people don't get the wrong impression. Yeah, absolutely, and of course that is a a justification in situations like this. Yeah, Carrie. I'm thinking of the early church and seeing it used to the early, early church. Yeah. How then the early church was set itself apart by how they loved one another. They did. And yeah. ultimately, they loved the non Christians too. Yeah. And you can bring it as the Roman Empire. Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. James is giving, yeah, James is here concerned not only with, um, Carrie's making the point that in the early church, of course, we know historically, one of the things that was distinctive about them was how they loved one another and also loved their neighbors in need, even those outside the church. Um, And that was ultimately how social change happened in in the first few centuries um, AD. Yeah, I think James here is giving his, his readers not only instruction for their personal holiness and their life together with God, but also for, yeah, what does it mean to bring social change? What does it mean for the gospel to manifest itself in the world? Of course, these are the same kinds of things that Wes Baker was talking about last Sunday, right, in Sunday school and then in the sermon. Uh, The work of Peru Mission has that sort of holistic approach um, um, to the expression of the gospel, and certainly James is, is, is emphasizing that here. Todd. Yes. Right. It's all talking about faith. It's all talking about faith. And so to me, it's important to ask the question, and this is so uncontroversial, I realize, but it's something I think the Reformed reading has struggled with in this Mm -hmm. text, Mm -hmm. which is is James trying to get this group of people to have true faith initially? Mm Okay. That dead faith is not 
Right. Or what is what does works really do for what is the relationship between faith and works? Is it is it evidence? Is that really what James is doing? Or is it more like you know enlivening mm-hmm. that works actually enlivens faith? Mm-hmm. That works so as I read this, it seems very strong that James is trying to get not to okay, so therefore what you really need is real faith. But you gotta do the works with the faith. Mm-hmm. That's Sure. I mean, I would say, I don't know if you all call it that. I think I'm going to try to summarize. So Todd is basically asking, is, is James trying to impress upon his readers that they need to have true faith? This is what true faith looks like. Or second option, is he just trying to get them, how did you put it? To, to, do, the works. to do the works that are they need to flow out of that, their that, faith? That enliven faith. That enliven faith. Um, yeah, I guess I would say... Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly lean towards the first option, personally. That, that, that what James is doing here is talking about the nature of true faith, that true faith is always organically connected in such a way that it's dead without obedience. And I, think, I do think that word obedience is helpful, um, because sometimes I think we think of works as these like super extra things we do. He's just talking about daily life. Um, I think he's, I th- my personal reading of this is that James is trying to talk about the organic connection between true faith and obedience to God's law, um, that you can't have one without the other. You can't, you can't express true faith and be antinomian in terms of your Christian life. Yeah, that, that's my reading of this. Yes, John. Yes. All the reformed doctrines started coming out with Paul. Right. And that reformed is really on this rather than the other way around. This is, this is, because it's later in the New Testament, he says this is a finer point yeah. on all the doctrine. And this is, it's not a finer point on the doctrine, it's a foundation yes. of the doctrine of all. I totally agree. That's a great point. The, the, the chronology here is important. And I think, and most New Testament, conservative New Testament scholars at least, would agree that. It's almost, it's very likely that James is written before Paul, um, that, that James is not in some way responding to Paul. Um, rather, perhaps Paul is, you know, is, is, honestly, I think Paul is just dealing with different issues altogether. Um, but yeah, James, James is not contradicting Paul here. It's very likely that Paul's, Paul's writings in Romans 4 and other places have not even been uh, written by the power of the Spirit yet. Yeah, this is a foundational idea of, this is the kind of faith that Paul is talking about when he will say, that it is faith alone that justifies and not the works of the law, right? Um, and, and, and there Paul is dealing with a different set of concerns. He's dealing with, um, yeah, just different concerns there. Yeah? Sure, yeah, and our confession speaks about that, that, that the, very, the very last section of that chapter talks about good works done by unregenerate people that, um, that, that while they... they or can be in some sense obedient to God's law because they don't come from a regenerate heart. They aren't offered for God's glory. Um, they ultimately don't have any salvific or, or they can't really be called good in, in, a, in an ultimate sense. Yes, sir. Yeah, we'll kind of talk about that. We talked about the difference between obedience to the son and obedience to Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure, they, right, right. Yeah, they do what God wants, right, but it's different than obedience a son renders to a father. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good analogy. All right, let's keep moving through here so we can 
See if we can cover the rest of this. So someone will say, you have faith and I have works, James says. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's basically setting up this idea that, um, that, that someone will want to say, this person has faith, this person has works, they're different things. Um, James is saying, no, they're organically connected. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works because my faith and my obedience are organically connected to one another such that you cannot separate them. You believe that God is one. And of course here he's referring back to Deuteronomy 6, right? The Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, that, that profession, of, this is like the creed of, of the Hebrew Bible, right? Of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he's probably writing here primarily to Jewish uh, Christians, they would have been very familiar with that. That would have gone off. Yes, I believe God is one. You believe that God is one. You do well. And then he has this point. Even the demons believe and shudder. And of course, this is what we see in the Gospels, right? What are the, gosp- what are the demons constantly calling Jesus in the Gospels when he comes to them? Son of the Most High, right? The Holy One, right? They, demons are, in some sense, articulating, quote-unquote, Faith, and, and if we define faith just simply as um, assent to um, intellectual ideas about who people are, right? They acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. But what are they not rendering to the Son of God that is required to give him? Obedience, right? <laughs> right? They're, they're persisting in rebellion against him. Um, and so that, quote-unquote, faith, it's not really faith, right? It's just bare intellectual assent. Um, that is not actual faith because it does not manifest itself in obedience. And James is saying, you know, it's not simply enough for you to believe that God is one and then do whatever you like. Even the demons, um, in some sense, do that. They acknowledge um, who Jesus is, who God is. The trouble is that they don't obey. They rebel. They rebel against his law and his ways. Um, and, and he says, and they shudder, right? They actually have some, you're actually maybe worse than a demon because you're not shuddering <laughs> in your situation. Um, uh, you're, you're blinder than they are. At least they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that I think that fits with the whole context of the chapter too, or the, the epistle. Faith, according to James, is something that's tested and produces steadfastness over time. It's something that you have to you have to ask in faith for wisdom and not be double-minded, but persist in that asking. Even though we know wisdom comes through trials and obedience in the midst of suffering, um, we we faith is something that means that you don't show partiality to others. Um, the assembly of the Lord Jesus because your faith in him. Like, faith all throughout the epistle is not, it's not just simply bare intellectual assent. It's something that expresses itself in a life of obedience. And, and it's easy to see that somebody would say, I'm saying the right things about God, therefore, like, like that is, that's enough. That's enough for, for any Christian to do. Like, it's easy, it's easy to imagine. Sure. Well, we, we have people today, of course, that, <laughs> that would say that, right? Yeah. So let me, let me keep going here. So he says, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? And that, that title is important, right? 
Um, what does it mean to call someone a foolish person in the scriptures? Where are we going? What book are we looking at? Proverbs, right? You fool is what he's saying. And he means that biblically, right? He's not just throwing out a random insult, right? He's, he's, he, there's a category in the Proverbs of the wise man and the foolish man, right? And, and he's saying, if you think this is the way things are, that you can have faith without works, without obedience, then you are a fool, biblically speaking. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It is impotent. It is not alive, um, to use that broader image that he's been using throughout 17 and 26. Um, and then he gives this illustration, again, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Here, of course, James is referring to Genesis 22, um, the sacrifice of Isaac that, that God requires of Abraham and Abraham complies with, um, and God keeps him from committing at the very end when the angel of the Lord appears. You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works or by his obedience. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So let's think about this for a moment. Um, so he goes back to the story of Abraham, verses 21 to 24. Um, and he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He talks about this event that happens in Genesis 22 that, of course, is um, Abraham's great act of obedience. Um, Hebrews 11 also refers to it as his great act of what? His faith, right? It says the paradigmatic faith of Abraham is expressed, according to Hebrews, most um, fully in his offering up of, of Isaac on the altar um, because he believed what about God? That God could do what? Raise him from the dead, right? That even if he went through with it, that, that God had promised at that point his faith was so secure and confident. Um, he knew that Isaac was the son of promise, that if, if, if by some crazy reason God wanted him to put Isaac to death, then God would have to raise him from the dead. And he believed that, and that's why he went through with it, or almost went through with it. <clears throat> Um, so that's the story he refers to. And then he says, you see that faith was active along with his work. So that faith was, was, um, was expressing itself. It was active. His obedience was active. His faith was actually completed by his obedience. It would not have been enough for him to say, well, I believe God that Isaac is the son of promise, but I'm not going to obey you in this, in this extent um, because I don't trust you in that way. Um, no, his faith had to be completed um, by his obedience. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So where does that scripture appear? That's a direct quotation of Genesis, right? Before Genesis 22 or after? Before, right? Genesis 15, verse 6, right? Paul quotes it in Romans 4. Um, Abraham believed God. This is one of the, I think, the second appearance of God um, to Abraham or third maybe, um, where he comes and he, and, he, and he covenants with him that's right before he cuts the animals in half and God expressly makes this covenant ceremony with Abraham. Um, the writer of Genesis says, Abraham believed God, that God was going to bless him, that God was going to give him descendants, make him a great nation, all those things. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So what Abraham, I mean, what the, James is saying is that faith that is expressed uh, verbally, explicitly um, in Genesis 15 is then 
uh, fulfilled in Genesis 22. Faith has an end. Faith has a trajectory. Faith is going somewhere. I think that's really the major point that, that James is making here overall. Um, that, 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 and we see this in the life of Abraham. Um, you know, Abraham's faith is one that matures and develops, right? Um, Abraham at, at Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 is not ready to be tested by God in offering his son up on the altar. I'm very confident that if he had been asked to do that at that point, he would have failed. He would not have been able to do that. Um, part of the evidence of that is Genesis 16, where right after this, um, Abraham falls into sin with Hagar, right? Um, he, he immediately sort of um, says he believes God and then acts differently. And then the Lord, through circumstances, um, helps him understand that's not, that's not the right way. You know, it's going to be through Sarah that your son is born. These kinds of things. But that faith that was expressed is then fulfilled in his obedience. Um, and that's, that's what I think it's talking about here. If you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I, th- I think the very quick and easy um, uh, or straightforward explanation I have of this text is that that word daikeu um, that is translated as justified here, that's the same word, of course, that's translated as justification or justified in the writings of Paul, has a range of meanings. Um, it doesn't always mean the same thing. Um, it can mean um, either um, some, that something is vindicated, something is evidenced, something um, is, is shown to be righteous, right? That can be a, um, like someone can be um, justified um, in their, like their, you know, you can make a statement and then be justified in that statement um, because it, it turns out you're right, right? You make a prediction or something and you're justified in that. So that's a different meaning, I think, than what Paul is, is using the word justify when he's talking about um, essentially forensic righteousness, right? The, um, the being just and righteous before God. Um, I, think, I think that what James is talking about here is more of that second meaning, that a person is justified, is proven righteous by works, by obedience, and not by faith alone. Um, that, and again, that faith alone, he's referring to it in a different way, right? The slogan of the, of the Reformation is, you know, um, is faith alone that justifies. And of course, we all believe that. I believe that. Um, James believes that. Um, but what James is saying here is that that faith, um, as Luther puts it, the faith that justifies is never alone. Yes, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It always expresses itself in obedience. And that's, that's when James is talking about faith alone here, he's not talking about a true, vital, living faith. He's talking about bare intellectual assent, um, a nod towards God without a submission of your life, the kind of faith that we might say demons have. Um, based on what he said earlier. Does that make sense, that distinction that James is making there? He then goes on and gives a second example, verses 25 to 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead, or faith apart from obedience is dead. Of course, the story there in Joshua 2, Rahab is a a citizen of Jericho. Um, The spies come. um, She hides them initially, and then she goes up on the roof after she lies to the king of Jericho's soldiers that are looking for the spies, and she talks to them, and she says, save me. I know who you are. I know who Yahweh is. I know what he did to Egypt at the Red Sea, and I want to be delivered from the judgment that's about to come on Jericho, right? 
And then she sends them out safely. She, she hides them and, and sends them out by another way so they escape. So you have the expression of faith that is, that is stated there, but then that faith is evidence, it's expressed in obedience. In this case, obedience by protecting the people of God, uh, protecting these spies who have come under her care and protection um, and when she risked her own life to do so, right? Obviously, if she had been found out, she would have been killed. Um, but she, she does that, and that, that faith is what, um, or I'm sorry, that, those, that obedience is what gives justification to her faith and vindicates her faith as being a true and lively faith because it shows itself in obedience. Um, it's interesting, in Hebrews 11, Rahab is mentioned as well, and this is how her faith is described that she had faith because she sent, she greeted the spies of Israel with peace, that her faith is actually demonstrated in this action that she does of obedience. And Hebrews 11 refers to her specifically. Give me one sec, Eric, I'll take a question. So then James ends with, again, with this reiteration of this statement um, that we see in verse 17. So the, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead, or faith apart from obedience is dead. Um, faith and obedience are organically connected um, in such a way that they, are, they, they, re- they require each other. You know, as we said earlier, you, if you can't obey God without faith, um, without um, trusting in Jesus, without um, believing in God, you have to believe that God exists and He rewards those who seek Him, as Hebrews tells us. But you can't have faith, true, lively faith, without obedience to God's law, without submission to Him. And that's, that's basically the point that James is making, that these things are connected to one another. They can never be taken apart any more than the spirit can be pulled out of the body and the body can still be alive. Right? That's what death is. It's the, the tearing of body and spirit. That's what happens when Jesus says, into your hands, O Father, I commit my spirit. He gave up his spirit and died. Right? His spirit was torn from his body. He died. That's what happens when anybody dies. And you can't tear apart faith and obedience any more than you can tear the spirit out of a person, his soul out of him, and expect him to still live. All right, Carrie and then Eric. I mean, Carrie, KB, sir. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right, I guess. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So KB is making the the point that that what James is teaching here is 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 pushing his readers toward community with one another, because the obedience we render to God is most often expressed really in loving our neighbor, and we have to be in proximity to other people, in relationship with other people, in order to love them, in order to serve them, in order to obey God in that way. And that's right. This is moving us away from a, a very isolated and individualistic faith, quote unquote, toward a faith that's in community. It's it is. Yeah, when I go away by myself for three days, I sin a lot less, I'll tell you. I mean, I'm being serious. Like, it is much easier not to sin um, when, I'm, when I'm on my silent retreat by myself and nobody's annoying me. Um, so let's just be honest. Okay. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, 
It's true. Yeah. That's a yeah, that's a great example. So Eric is connecting that that when James says if you tell someone be warm and be filled, but don't take care of them, um, that's not that's that's dead. That's useless. And he connects that to the work with Rahab. Obviously, Rahab is a great counterexample of that. Um, she not only. Um, expresses faith, she also, in a blessing on the spies, she also takes them in, hides them, and then pushes them out at risk to herself, just like it would have been risky for these first century Christians to show care. Um, It would have been identifying with Jesus and with his people in order if you do that. All right, we're we're out of time. This is a great discussion. I'm thankful for it. I'm happy to answer more questions as as they come up, but let's stand and pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful for the way in which you care about all of us, Um, not just all of us as a group, but all of ourselves, that you want not only our our intellect, Father, um, you want not not only our sort of um, uh, impressions of of goodwill towards you, but you desire the, the totality of us, desire our whole submission to you. And I pray, Lord, that the faith that characterizes our lives individually and our life as a community here at Colleyville uh, would be one that is uh, manifest in obedience, um, that shows itself forth in obedience to your will, obedience to your law, love for, our, love for one another, um, service to one another, a faith that is um, fulfilled um, by the obedience that we render to you. And Father, by it, will you, may you strengthen our assurance, may you give evidence of our faith, uh, may you build up our community even here as we seek to glorify and honor you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.